subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripods Blogs community at tripods.com, Jerry's place for canine amputees and their people. Oh, that's silly, Jerry. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio. Today is Sunday, November 2nd, 2014, and we will be discussing the latest comparative oncology research with Drs. Avenel Turner, a certified veterinary oncologist from the Veterinary Cancer Center in Southern California, and Dr. Christy Richards, a researcher studying the relationship between cancer in pets and people at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Department of Genetics. If you're listening live, please call 646-716-5450 with your brief questions or join us in the live chat room now at tripods.com slash chat. Dr. Turner, Dr. Richards, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Hi thanks, thanks for having, having us. us. Hi there, this is Renee and, and I just want to say thanks. We're really, really excited to have you on the show today and, and talk about this this new area of research that uh, a lot of us are just now learning about. Um, So thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Sure. Um, Hey, Dr. Turner, let's start with you. Um, Can you uh, tell us uh, a little bit about your work at the um, Veterinary Cancer Group and, and, um, you know, what exactly you do and and what what brought you uh, to to meet with uh, Dr. Richards and collaborate on projects and things like that? Let's just start with like your your basic work and, and what you do there first. Sure, sure. So a, a basic day for me is I see primarily dogs and cats, um, the occasional ferret and uh, other exotic pets, but generally dogs and cats. And I treat pets with chemotherapy that have cancer. Um, mm-hmm. A typical day, usually I, I have a lot of discussions with a lot of owners about what we can do and what we should do. Um, but ultimately what we end up deciding is something that's best for their pet and what's going to help their pet live the best life that they can. Um, so my day is pretty pretty standard. You know, I think what I do is fairly uh, fun. Um, I, I love my patients. I love um, seeing them every day. Um, and I think the thing that we share, Christy and I, is, you know, both of us, we, we go to work and um, we treat our patients um, with chemotherapy. Hers are just people and, and mine are everything else. Um, as far as we've met, how we met, actually, it's a, it's a longer story than we probably have time for, um, but we originally <laughs> met through a common friend, um, a veterinarian that I went to school with. Her name is Lenny, and she was getting married. And at her, met, at her wedding, I met Christy, who was going to be moving to Houston, which is where I had just recently moved, to start a fellowship in oncology. And I was currently in Houston doing an oncology residency in veterinary medicine. So we ended up having pretty similar interests and pretty similar taste and ended up in the same city and started talking and we realized that a lot of what I do is very similar to what she does Um, and Mm -hmm. I also was intrigued by how interested she was in what I did and how um, surprised and how new some of the stuff that I told her 
that wasn't really um, well known on her side of the field and what she does. That's exactly right. Wow. Yeah, I can, you know, I can I can see this this partnership, uh, the friendship forming here, and and, and, <laughs> and why. I mean, it's it's incredible how much, um, you know, animal oncology and human oncology um, is is alike. And um, I I just read a really great book uh, about that uh, by Dr. Sarah Boston. She's an oncologist in at University of Florida, and uh, she wrote a, a really great book. I want to say it's called Lucky Dog, um, where mm-hmm. she talks about how she was treated with um, she was treated for thyroid cancer, and she compares that to how she treats animals uh, for for cancer. And a really fascinating book, and I'm totally diverting, um, but uh, it just reminded me <laughs> of, of what you were saying. So, um, Dr. Richards, um, let's uh, let's talk about you. Um, what what exactly do you do in, at, at UNC? And I'd also like to hear a little bit more about this exciting news that you just got about a, a new uh, career change or, or uh, move for you um, to a, yeah. an institution. Yeah. So, uh, like Dr. Turner said, I started working on this project when I first arrived at UNC about seven years ago. And what I do in a normal day is very similar to what Dr. Turner does one day out of the week. I see patients and um, treat uh, mostly lymphomas in my case, um, but all kinds of blood cancers in in patients, human patients. Uh-huh. And um, then the rest of the week, I have a laboratory where I do research in genetics and genomics. And since I've been at UNC, I have... Um, started working on a comparative oncology project about canine lymphoma, and that has then led to a job offer at Cornell University where they're trying to get their comparative oncology program really up and running and um, in quite a significant way. So I decided to join in that effort. So I'll be going there at the beginning of next year. Well, congratulations. That is so exciting. I am very excited about it because I think it's going to further this comparative oncology program quite a bit. Now, now tell me, uh, and this is a question for either one of you, but exactly, what is comparative oncology? What, what is the definition of it, and how does it help in uh, efforts to treat and ultimately cure cancer? Um, can, can either one of you explain that? Christy, do you want to take Dr. this one? Okay, I'll take that one. Um, so... Comparative oncology is uh, one of those examples of a medical word that has is just made up of regular English words, but it takes on a new meaning. Um, and basically what it means is oncology is the study of cancer, and comparative medicine is when we use uh, veterinary and human medicine comparisons to further both fields. And so if you put that together, comparative oncology is the specific comparisons between cancer across all species. Okay, so my understanding then is it's a lot of uh, intensive research to find out how cancer behaves in animals and how it behaves in people and how we might be able to uh, treat it in both. Is that, am I that, kind of getting that's that? That's exactly right. So we're, we're taking advantage of evolutionary conservation. If, if a process is important enough to have survived across all species, and when a cancer arises in a dog, if it's similar in some ways to a cancer that arises in a human, that the ways in which it's similar 
must be very biologically important. And that's what oncologists want to target when they think about medicines to treat cancer, is they want to target the very important fundamental pathways. So it's by using two species or more and comparing, you can then sort of point directly at the relevant places to target with therapy. Okay, I think I'm getting this now. And um, Dr. Turner, I, you mentioned you see ferrets sometimes. Do ferrets get cancer? And if they do, is it, <laughs> is it kind of like dogs? I mean, is it the same thing? Yeah, ferrets actually get lymphoma very commonly, which is one of the most common cancers I see. Yeah, and most owners of ferrets love their ferrets just like they love their dog and cat, and if they can do it, um, chemotherapy is very effective for them. So. We're going to have to add that one to the list. <laughs> yeah, so ferrets, Absolutely. I, I don't see them as often as I did in my residency, but um, the occasional ferret we do see, and, and uh, they're amazing pets. They're, they're, they're funny. They're different. I would say they're a little between a dog and a cat. They, they, they don't really share kind of the same behaviors or the same doses of drugs. So um, they're kind of they're your own unique little combination of the two traits, but, but wonderful. And I, I do get the occasion to see them. I heard recently that hedgehogs get lymphoma as well. Yes. Really? Yes, they do. The yes. yes they do. <laughs> that was a new one for and me. Guinea pigs. <laughs> and guinea pigs. <laughs> so, so cancer is one of those things that, like you said, it crosses all species. I mean, you That's know, right. when, wow, when our dog was diagnosed, we had no idea. We were so clueless. This was in 2006, but we didn't even know that dogs got cancer. Oh, my gosh, you know. And and now that people are becoming more aware of it, um, these these two worlds they're they're intersecting, and we understand you know we're we're gaining this understanding that our pets get it just like like we as people do. And how do how do your two totally you know, they're not totally different, but how do your two careers intersect in in helping pets with cancer? Um, you know, beyond the, the research level, is is there something going on right now that you could tell me about where, where you guys are, are, you know, making life better for pets with cancer? Um, you know, I, I, I guess for me, um, when I'm treating my animals, um, sometimes there we don't have as much information in our field as they do in people about same, the, the same cancers that they treat. Um, so when I have a, a difficult case, um, the way Christie's world helps me, me and my veterinary world is that, you know, a lot of our protocols that we currently use to treat um, different types of cancers are, mem are based on how they actually treat people for the same disease. And so if we don't have that path written for us, you know, as some tumors we see on a much lower level than they do in people, we also then don't have those studies to help us drive what our therapy should be. So one of the ways that, you know, what Christy does helps me is, you know, I obviously can call her, but the other thing I can do is, you know, read their journals and see, you know, what they do for other cancers because they're going to see them on a much more number basis that gets reported on. Um, and when we don't see that same disease in our field, there's many limits to why we don't have that information. A lot of it comes down to research and research dollars where that money goes to. And so a lot of the studies we have are based on tumors that we see in frequent numbers. So um, um, protocol choices, um, you know, outcomes, you know, are a little bit difficult to, to correlate with people since they live so much longer. Um, but we, we definitely see um, treatment strategies and develop them from how they, they, they treat people. Oh, the reverse really is true cool. as well. Yeah. The reverse is true yeah, as well, please, actually. There are some, there are some 
types of cancer that are very rare in humans and hard to study because of that, but yet they're very common in animals. So one strategy might be to study those tumors in animals where you can learn something and then apply what you learn back to humans. Oh, wow. Like, what kinds of, of cancer are you thinking of? Can you, can you name a couple? So, so there's one that is a, a mast cell tumor that uh, uh-huh. there's a disease in humans called systemic mastocytosis. Um, and uh, that's an example of a tumor that you don't see very often at all um, in humans, but there are some people with it, unfortunately, and um, there's very little ability to do research because those patients are few and far between, whereas uh, Avenel can comment better than me on this, but, um, you know, that's a very commonly seen tumor in dogs. Very common. Yes, least. we see it all Oh, time. yeah. We get yes. at least uh, two or three members a week who join us for that reason. Yes. Yeah, and there's actually um, two of the first drugs that were approved with, for a veterinary indication in cancer before human were approved for mast cell tumors in dogs, and now one of those drugs is actually being used in a clinical trial in humans at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So that's kind of exciting. Oh, wow. That's one way that yeah. the, the research in the dogs has informed human cancer research. So, in, in, you know, I, I used to think that dogs were the, um, I don't want to say the guinea pig, but, you know, they were the testing ground for human cancers. But, it, I mean, it works both ways. That is that is really interesting. I never looked at it like that. Well, and mm-hmm. I think and the other thing that's really important about the both ways is that in the, the, the example you gave, Renee, um, that's kind of making those tumors develop in animals in like a research setting. The difference mm-hmm. when we study pets that live in our environments that share our home because they're our companions, they're sharing our environment and they're exposed to the same things that are potentially carcinogenic, um, can alter your genetics and begin to develop cancer. So by studying them in the natural setting where they live a natural life and develop can- cancer naturally, we actually have a better model for studying diseases versus when we create those diseases and put them in animals in a laboratory situation. That's right. That makes so much sense. Like I'm, I'm looking at my couch right now, and I know it's treated with something, <laughs> and you know, uh, and so, but dog lays on it a lot more than I do. So, you know, if there is something nasty and toxic in there, I mean, yeah, the chances are that he's going to pick it up before I yeah. do. That's wow, right. And that when is... we make when when we make tumors, say in a mouse, which is a common laboratory animal, those we have to know what the genetic lesion is so that we can create that tumor in a mouse. We recreate a tumor by making a particular genetic mutation. That's not, a nat- that's not how humans get cancer. Humans get a whole series of mutations and have a spontaneously arising cancer that arises later in life. The same is true for pets. They have a whole collection of mutations that you know collect over time. There's not a particular genetic lesion that is common to all of them, which is you know, a a big advance when you're trying to study what causes cancer, if you can get Mm -hmm. as similar as possible to the way it's happening in humans. So I think pets are a a largely untapped resource for studying human cancers as well. And so what we're trying to do is sort of raise awareness of this so that research dollars can flow towards studying pets with cancer, because that traditionally has not happened, Um, and say that this is a good complementary type of animal model, so to speak, for human cancer, and at the same time can benefit pets. 
I, I love that. You know, I mean, we, we all care so much for our animals, and, and, and we're all just at, you know, such a loss. Why isn't there a cure for cancer? Why? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and but if, if, if we can all look at our animals and say, wow, you know, you're going to help us get there. So, yeah. just like you said, let's, let's focus our research dollars. So I, I'm jumping around a little bit, but as far as research goes, um, where, how can we help in that, that regard? Is it by giving um, our donations to the new program at Cornell, for example, or, or where do we begin with, with that kind of thing? Well, I think some of it is um, just being aware enough because it's, it's your tax dollars that are going to the National Cancer Institute that is funding a lot of cancer research. And right mm-hmm. now, the National Cancer Institute, Institute does not give a lot of money to research on pets. And that's mostly historic, and it's, you know, it's awareness. So if everybody, you know, knows about the situation and talks to their legislators and says, we want this kind of research to happen, then it will happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Politicians are very sensitive to their, you know, constituency, and they will listen to what people say. So I think it's just really what we're trying to do is to get the awareness out there that these types of projects exist, and are, it, that is growing rapidly, and I think the research money will come after. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think there, the other thing... I'm sorry? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> going to add to Christy's saying is is that the other thing that I think is really important for the audience listening to know is that these aren't we aren't trying to substitute people's pets as research kind of the the you know substitute them for these um, animals that we do some of the preclinical trials in you know the, the you know the still the toxicity studies those need to still happen likely in the same fashion in our in our world what would happen is that we would have a clinical trial that's starting in people and at that same time have that same drug start a clinical trial in dogs for the same tumor so or cats you know I, I leave cats out but cats are in there as well but um, for mm-hmm. this talk um, for dogs we would like them to start at the same time so we're not trying to use this drug in a dog to make sure it's going to be safer before we put it in people we've already deemed that it's safe to try in people we just want to start the trial at the same time in a dog and this by mm-hmm. by doing this we potentially may solve the problem or see results much quicker and have data to report back in a much more um, rapid fashion, and then these can also help benefit people. And that's the other aspect of not, um, what I don't think a lot of people have awareness of, is how that st- that type of study base could help people as well. So I guess what the audience yeah, could do, it, what uh-huh. the audience could do to help also um, is to ask their veterinarians, do you have any clinical trials available? Because yes. the more demand there are for clinical trials, the more... It's sort of like if you build it, they will come. (laughs) If people want clinical trials for their pets, then to get the latest and greatest medications, then the veterinarians will have a drive to have those be available, and that will make our job much easier. Um, Dr. Turner, you, I know that she, the, uh, the veterinary cancer group, they, they do have clinical trials there, correct? Um, and yes, we do. do you, so does, it, does the client have to ask for them, or do you look at a client and say, hey, I think you would be, your dog or cat would be really great for this study? Um, how does that work in, in the practice? 
Well, it, it depends on the clinical trial. Um, some clinical trial, and, and there, you know, it's, it's a whole other very interesting talk about the, the phases of clinical trials. But typically, when when I accept to do one, um, in or, my recommendation for whether an owner should participate or not is generally based if it comes with standard of care or if it's something novel or new that we we have no idea how it's going to work compared to standard of care, because that would change my my opinion on who I think would be a good candidate. We we publicize what clinical trials trials we're doing on our, our website. Um, some owners come to us from um, independent sources. They may have heard from, um, you know, a friend or another veterinarian may have told um, told them to come see us for a clinical trial. But, but it's important for me, for anybody who decides to elect to have their dog do a clinical trial, that, that they understand it, what, what they're getting. And the current clinical trial that we're doing is for lymphoma for T-cell lymphoma, and um, most dogs are going to be candidates at least to be screened because it basically any dog that joins this trial gets standard of care, which is our standard six-month chemotherapy protocol. So all dogs will get the standard of care. Um, what the trial is looking at is a monoclonal antibody um, similar to a drug in humans called rituximab. That's a monoclonal antibody for B cells. Um, this is looking at a T-cell monoclonal antibody. And, and so we don't know which dogs will get that and which dogs don't, but what I do know is that all dogs are getting their standard of care. And so for those owners, you know, I think it's a, it's a reasonable trial if they can do the recheck schedule. Um, you know, I know all dogs, if they decide to um, enroll and they qualify, that they're going to get the standard of care. Um, for other trials where it may be a placebo-based, meaning, you know, one out of two or one out of three dogs will get a sugar pill, the other two or three will get the actual drug, it's much more difficult to recommend that. You know, those are trials more for people who maybe could not afford what the standard of treatment is. Um, we currently don't have one of those um, going on right now, uh, but when we do, I still think those are valuable as well. Um, we know the drug is not harmful um, that we're testing generally, um, and we know the outcome for the pets, you know, if they didn't get any treatment at all. And so, you know, my recommendations in that situation would be different. You know, standard of care is always what I recommend. I think that's what we should follow. Um, but many owners can't afford that or afford even a fraction of it. So if there's something that can provide monitoring and potentially a therapeutic um, treatment, you know, that would be another recommendation I would make for those owners. But, but my goal is for more people to be aware of them. Um, you know, I, I don't ever want anybody to feel that they are told that they have to do one. I want it to be kind of cooperative because, you know, we all have to cooperate you know, there's a much more, usually more rechecks, paperwork, um, and follow through with the trials. But I'm I'm so surprised and always honored to work with people because I find that my clients are 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 looking for that. They're looking to even participate if they didn't have to participate. And and you know, and that's what's so great about I think our veterinary owners is that they they want to help. You know, we, we they want to generally provide this information. And then I think they're even overwhelmed when they realize that this can impact what they do in people. And so my 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 reason for doing the trials is one to further our field, but also, you know, I I enjoy people just as much as dogs, and I would I love that what I do can potentially help what. Christy does in her life. That, thank you, thank you. That wow. I we all we all want to feel like we're making a difference. You know, we're dealing with yes. this horrible disease, and and when yes. we're if we're going to go through something like chemo with our pets or our our people, I mean, yeah, you definitely want to feel like you can do something so nobody else has to go through it. Um, yeah. That kind of leads me to a, a question one of our our members has, and she posted it in our forums and. She just wanted to find out how, in general, you know, we, we run surveys and things like that on tripods. Um, recently, we had one about when did your dog develop lung metastasis? 
uh, for dogs that had osteosarcoma. And she just wanted to find out, do you ever take note of any results in surveys like this? Just, you know, they're not exactly scientific, but do they, do they bear any weight on any kind of research that, that you do? That Either is a really excellent question. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. well, I will tell you, I've been thinking of ways, and I've had some colleagues that have done this successfully, of using the Internet or, you know, social media or things like that to do research, actually. Mm-hmm. And that, what you just described is a perfect question, because if that were set oh. up carefully, um, that could be a research project, and, mm-hmm. and that's valuable data that you're acquiring. And I can't say that I've used it because I didn't know it existed, but I bet there are people um, studying osteosarcoma and lung metastases that would love to have access to that data and structure the survey in a way that would provide useful data. So that's actually sort of a side hobby of mine that I think we should um, tap into a little more in the future um, because we always are thinking of ways, and this is true for pets and for people, to increase enrollment and participation in clinical trials. Only 3% of um, adults in the United States are on oncology clinical trials for their treatment. Really? Just 3%. So that we're wasting a whole lot of potentially valuable resources and ability to move forward quicker by not having people have access to these studies. And um, if we could increase that in a way, and I think the Internet might be one way to do that, um, then we could make progress faster. So the key would be to approach uh, somebody like you and say, hey, we want to do this survey. Um, could mm-hmm. we work with you to structure our questions yeah. so that they yeah, can help exactly. us? So, I don't mm-hmm. know. That is really yes. good to know. Well, we're yeah. all over that. We have a whole community <laughs> to, to give you all the information you want. So we'll definitely see. Be this is exactly how these projects start. We're yes. sitting down having a chat, and Ava and Alan and I have done this numerous times. And we always like we're always sitting down. We're usually having a beer, actually, and uh, we start talking, and and these ideas come up, and and they sound good, and we so you know sometimes we they they sound good even after the beer clears, and uh, then we go forward and 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 pursue it. Okay, well, I'm going to buy you a beer next time I see each one of you. We're going to talk <laughs> Excellent. about this. Excellent. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, Dr. Richards, um, I'm really excited to hear about this program at Cornell. I know this wasn't on our list mm-hmm. of questions, but can, sure, can you tell me sure. a little bit about, about what that's going to look like? Yeah, um, it's uh, it looks a little bit similar to what I'm doing now. So what I'm, I'm I'm collaborating with NC State, which is the vet school that's close to UNC. It's about a half an hour away. Um, uh-huh. Cornell uh, has a also has a, a vet school and a med school that's strong in oncology and lymphoma research in particular. But the problem there is the vet school is in Ithaca and the med school is in New York City. So they have a lot of people that are interested in this idea of comparative oncology research, but until now, they haven't had really the person to kind of pull together both campuses and make all this concerted effort move forward. And so that's going to be my role is because I'm the human doctor, but I'm going to be located in Ithaca mostly. And so I'm going to try to pull together both campuses and really harness everything that they've already put together, which is quite substantial, actually, and um, make it go forward as quickly as possible. 
Oh, that is so exciting. It is. Wow. It is. I'm very wow. anxious to get started. <laughs> are, there, I think, are there any you know, others that are doing something like that? Are there any other institutions? Um, that... I think it's. I think it's catching on. But as when I when I talk about this, I say that it's really hard because places that have great vet schools are often not in the same geographic location as med schools um, that are taking care of oncology, human oncology patients. And so if mm-hmm. you think about where vet schools are in a state and where the med schools are, they're usually not close together. So I think that's been another problem. You know, we talked a little bit about at the beginning about sort of lack of awareness and lack of understanding on the part of the human docs that, you know, the dogs and cats and pets are a good model. But in addition to that, the reason, I think, is because of geographic separation. And, and that's now, those walls are starting to break down. So places like um, Colorado, where right, uh, Avenel is, uh, yeah, um, uh, they're collaborating. I know um, Colorado State and University of Colorado have some collaborations going. And Penn is sort of a natural place where, you know, both are together, um, uh-huh. University of Pennsylvania and um, Ohio State University. Things are close together. And I know some pro- comparative oncology projects going on in all of those places. So, um, and I'm sure there are more that I'm not mentioning, but um, it really is, uh, starting to take off, and so it's kind of an exciting time to be working in the field. Yes. Oh, definitely. That we've just heard a lot about over the last couple of years, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes. Um, we just yeah. have a, a less than a minute left, um, Dr. Turner. I'd love to end this with you really quickly, if you can. Um, okay, can you tell me is Comparative oncology research, the key to finding a cure for cancer in pets and people. I mean, do you think we'll ever see one? You know, I hope we see one. Um, I think there are many keys to this solution, and I think this is one big one that we really haven't tapped into. And so, my hope, and what I hope, I know Christy hopes, is that we as what we do can move at least this area forward. And we hope this key, if we can find the solution, will help. You know, is there a cure? Um, Hopefully. Um, But I think what we can also fight for is living longer with the disease or living better with the disease. And so sometimes a cure may not be necessary if you can live with that disease, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years and not have it affect, you know, your quality of life. And so I think what we're doing can help with that, definitely, help get us there. Thank you. Thank you. That is really hopeful. I, I really appreciate you two being here today. Thank you so much for all this exciting sure. information. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, just want to thank you very much for all this information and for the wonderful work both of you are doing. Listeners can find more information about cancer and pets and links to both your websites in the Tripods News Blog at tripods.com. Until next time, hear this and all Tripod Talk radio podcasts at downloads.tripods.com. Until next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts and claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.